0: We've got a couple of people we're going to be talking to today. It uh, it we are right in the middle, as we all know, probably of a worldwide debate among parents and teenagers about their use of technology and how it's changed the landscape of communication and whether or not it's for good or evil. And I would say, probably for most of us, that uh, we would that, and it relates exponentially to age, that it's not altogether good. But one of our guests on Arts About today is Glenn Manton, and he's wrestling with ways to address this. He's worked with thousands of kids across the country and has come up with a book that doesn't demonise the phone but lays out a practical way of getting it under control and back to enhancing rather distracting from life. It's called Put Your Damn Phone Down. We're going to hear about that a little bit later on in the program. We're also going to be talking with artist Marco Lucio, who's an Australian artist with very strong ties to the US, whose etchings, dry points and paintings of urban cities has created an enormous list of devotees around the world. He's an exhibition on at uh, 45 Downstairs that's opening on the 25th of September called Manhattan Dreaming. And as you would imagine, it's urban Manhattan. And we're going to ask him a few questions about that.
1: Yes, it looks very interesting. Yeah,
0: it does, doesn't it? Just
1: about to put your damn phone down. I love that sign on the Peninsula link which says don't look at your phone. And the first thing you
0: do is look at your phone. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? It kind of causes the opposite effect. Okay, so before we do that, I'm going to play a little of Willie DeVille with Hey Joe, or his version of it. Hope you like this. Our next guest in the studio this morning is Glenn Manton and he's come on the program today to talk about his book which has just come out, Put Your Damn Phone Down. It's come out a couple of weeks ago by Brio, published by Brio Books and um, it's a further extension to the career of a very interesting man. Most of you would probably know that Glenn Manton's a former professional athlete turned author. He was a footballer of great repute in the 1990s for both... He's laughing when I'm saying that. What's that, the Great Repute?
2: Just the 1990s. It's just so long ago. And let's be honest, I can say anything about my career because it's all on VHS tape. No (laughs) one can watch it anymore. I can say that I won 17 Brownlows in a row and no one's really going to go against me because it's just a long time ago.
0: It is a very long time ago. Nice to see you, Sally. Thank you very much for coming in on the program today. Pleasure. Now, you have had a very unconventional career. You've had a a career as a footballer, but you have in that time been extremely vocal and probably worn that hat rather differently to many other footballers.
2: Absolutely. It's seen me uh, lose a few gigs in my time. I was only just thinking recently, and it's funny that we're mentioning dates, that I was writing for articles for the Age newspaper in the early 2000s and getting sacked. And yet those articles in 2018 would be coveted, they would be lauded as being uh, left of centre and, and widely appealing to an audience that was sick to death of footballers uh, talking about football. So it's interesting to see how there's been such a shift in culture, uh, not only in the last 15 years but over the course of my entire career which really bridged amateur to professional status for not only AFL footballers but for a lot of athletes across this country.
0: What, what were you challenging in those days? What were you writing articles about?
2: I actually got into a huge amount of trouble for writing an article about the birth of my first child and how that affected my football and how that affected my, I guess, outlook on life. And uh, yes, that was basically uh, chastised and seen as being not appropriate enough, not enough X's and O's. So you have to laugh because I remember the brief from that particular uh, representative of the age was, Glenn, you can write whatever you want to write. And sure enough, as soon as I write what I want to write, Glenn, you can't write that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was his actual voice or not, but it's as close <laughs> as I can remember it to being. So it's just an extraordinary, uh, I guess, ability that we all have hindsight to look back and, and put our lives and our, and our efforts against a timeline and, and against errors. And uh, certainly the errors that I was operating in, in terms of my football career – were still pretty damn stringent, mm. very conservative. I mean, we used to have team rules. Can you believe it? We had team rules and you were not allowed to break those team rules on the field. If you did, you'd be taken from the game and potentially ostracized from the team. How can you play a free flowing, freewheeling game against team rules. And I'm not talking about being in the game on time or wearing the same matching jumper. I'm talking about rules that would diminish your ability to play. So one of my team rules was... I was not allowed to mark the ball at times. I was told I had to punch the ball. I got dragged during a game. I got dragged. I took two big marks against Melbourne at the MCG. I got dragged off the ground, and I thought it was going to be the coach saying to me, unbelievable play, Glenn. Congratulations. You're going really, really well. Because the week before, I'd actually fractured my cheekbone, and I'd had surgery the night of the game the week prior, and then been able to front up for this next game. So I thought the coach was going to say, hey – top job courageous effort you're playing so well instead he said you're not there to mark the ball you're there to punch spend some time on the bench until you get that through your sick head so it's like oh my god are you joking Mm -hmm. and so this punitive system that i grew up playing football with, thankfully, seems to have passed. Is there a punitive nature here at the radio station? Do you get told there are certain words you're not allowed to say?
0: Well, there are certain things we are not allowed to say. In fact, I was having a conversation just off air a minute ago with Steve, our sound engineer, because one of the team, Mark Stewart, does tend to go off track quite regularly, and he's quite... It's confronting at times. He's very right. interested in talking about sexual things. Right. And sometimes that's not appropriate. Of course I have isn't. to keep saying to him, this is an arts program, Mark.
2: Absolutely. And then, look, of course, on this program or any other media platform, you're going to watch your P's, Q's and R's. But imagine if I was uh, demonstrative and I said to you, you can't say the word and or that or mm. when. And you'd be working through your interview and you, uh, what do I say now? Uh, I can't say anything now. So that freewheeling ability of any athlete, let alone person, is something to be celebrated. And I am happy that in 2018, for the majority of the time in sports, let alone life, we do celebrate individuals in a far greater capacity.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's a good thing. Now that is only one facet, of course, of your multifarious personality. I have worked with you before and our listeners will probably know that on a couple of comedy shows and fringe festival shows in the past. You've written several books. as Deadbolt. In fact, we ran the series of your no- little novel um, Ariel Black on here that you read some time ago on the program and you've got another book coming out. Put your damn phone down.
2: My latest book is probably, as some would say, my greatest book. Yep. I feel like it's a really, really fantastic publication. I'm very, very grateful to be able to work with a publisher on this occasion to bring out a book which I think is a bit of a game changer, especially for young people, mm-hmm. an opportunity to disconnect from technology Reconnect with oneself, reconnect with uh, the people around you, and build a greater sense of self. So the book itself has 50 very provocative questions within it. Believe it or not, each question has a tech breakout. So you're taking the question, you're taking the stimulus, but you can also utilize the tech breakout. So one that springs to mind is a very obvious tech breakout that we could describe over the radio. Mm -hmm. The question is, have you ever been racist? Yep. And the backdrop to that particular question is a screenshot from the movie Do the Right Thing, which of course is one of Spike Lee's great movies and probably holds more weight in 2018 as it ever has. But then there's an invitation there to sit down and watch that movie. And so if anyone listening hasn't seen that movie, do the right thing. I think it's an incredible cultural piece. It's an incredible piece on race relations. Mm-hmm. And it's just a damn fine movie. So you've got 50 opportunities to explore questions, build conversation, explore stimulus, whether it's a movie, whether it's an article, whether it's a website, whether it's a photograph, uh, and build up your knowledge of the world around you beyond just oneself and, of course, your own opinions and so forth interspersed with those particular questions are a series of stories from my life and the stories are very very raw and real they're gritty they're about tough subject matter everything is authentic it's very much based on my life not some sort of whimsical uh, i guess uh, outsider's perspective on, on what it's like to be Glenn Manton. it's very much my perspective Everything's been written by me in a car. I've been sitting in a car writing this uh, particular book for some months prior to its release uh, as I waited for my middle son to finish basketball training. So I invested the three hours sitting out at Oakley of all places (laughs) uh, in a car by writing this book. And to be quite honest, it wasn't that hard to write because the stories are so real, raw, and I own them.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but the the other thing about it, of course, is that this has grown out of an, another f- of your facets, which is as a public speaker. And you spent a lot of times, or I, I mean, going back, I, I should probably mention that in at the end of the nineties, ninety nine, I think you started uh, co started White Lion, which is a charity that was uh, put together to help support kids in crisis, or Absolutely. is that right? very fair. And, and then this public speaking that you have done has predominantly been, or a lot of it has been, in schools dealing with kids, youths that's right. Some in so, crisis, some not. Like,
2: absolutely correct. So White Lion is the, the charitable arm of Glenmanton, if you like, the philanthropic arm, and that's something that continues down its path to this very day, and, and White Lion has done enormous uh, work within the community, particularly with, as you said, young people in crisis or in disadvantage, whatever label you'd like to put against them, essentially young kids who are going through shit. Mm. And my work has been on the back end of my educational background, the teaching that I was performing whilst I was playing AFL football has morphed with my performance-based skills, Mm -hmm. my storytelling ability, and my want to share uh, opportunity with, more often than not, school-based youth to break out of just a curriculum mindset, to help a school balance its curriculum, find a way forward that's more holistic and uh, and well-rounded rather than just preaching mathematics or science or whatever it may be. Each has its own place, but I also think a guest speaker who can push and poke and pride and have young people sit up and take take attention of not only of their words but of themselves mm. is worth its weight in gold.
0: Mm. Um, and sort of Contrarily, this book is—you is, know—put your damn phone down. But actually, it's—it's uh, it's also encouraging. It's—it's it, it's not saying that phones are bad, is it?
2: No, not at all. If you throw your phone down a stairwell and break it, you won't be able to communicate with anyone. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, in two thousand eighteen, I say unfortunately because that's my opinion. We're very tech reliant, but that's not going anywhere soon. But we need to set in new ground rules, new parameters, new thinking. And I am seeing that just in my daily life. I think more and more people at a concert want to keep their phone away and mm. just enjoy the moment at a concert. Less and less people, when I'm out having lunch, are wanting to take photos of their food and post it. Thank God. Thank
0: goodness for that. Gee, that was a... it's, it's, it's a horrible. Phase, it was it? a
2: horrible fad. But I'm yep. hoping, moving forward, particularly for our young people, we can reinstate ideas, thoughts, mechanisms that say, listen, your phone is an interesting tool, it's a valuable tool, but can we bring it back to a 50-50 usage rate? So you can spend 50% of your time in this... Uh, uh, fantasy world, if you like, this online world, and 50% back in the real world. And mm. then of course, we, I, hopefully we can just keep inching that up and up in terms of real, real yeah. world uh, experience and, and expectations. So the book is saying disconnect, reconnect, but when you reconnect, let's do so with a, a greater sense of tech as well. Not just uh, a, a want to pick up the phone and say, radio. I'm just going to dive back in. I'm going to keep being conscious of my decisions around mm. my
0: tech. How do people get this book? Is, is it they out can on the shelves? Get yeah?
2: this book at all good bookstores, as one would mm-hmm. say. You can buy it online uh, via my website. And if you are at all inclined to be thinking, particularly for a school group, because literally hundreds and hundreds of young people in schools have already approached me about this book please feel free to come directly to me and discuss how it might be a resource across an entire class or year level or for that matter a corporate group Mm. so we can cater those bulk numbers. You mentioned that it's only been released uh, very recently and we're into our second print run.
0: Amazing. So so that tells you something
2: about how it's been received by the the wider populace. So I'm very, very grateful for how people have picked up on this book and I'm excited about its longevity as a resource for anyone who has a copy.
0: Fabulous. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you it. very much, So, I will, of course, put a link on our Facebook page to your website and to this book. What and were you
2: doing in the 1990s, by the way?
0: I was living in London in the 1990s. I was working in theatre and, and so on. And you know what? In, in the 1990s, I remember our first fax machine. and thinking, that was just <laughs> incredible. How did people do business before faxes? So I did get... I think I got a mobile phone then...
2: Just one quick one before we go, just one for your listeners to maybe have a laugh at. The next time you rent a car, and this is not a paid infomercial for this organisation, but at the budget Rent-A-Car, at least in Footscray where I sometimes rent a car, they still have one of those scanning machines that makes that irritating sound as they print out all your paperwork. And I really, really love seeing them trying to manipulate this machine. They might as well have a can with string in between it as you're trying to rent a car. So half a plug, half a... shame for budget probably won't be a sponsor of this show moving forward but i do thank you for having me on
0: it's wonderful thanks glenn manton Manhattan Dreaming opens at 45 downstairs on the 25th of September and despite the subject matter, Marco Lucio, the artist, is an Australian who originally studied at Warrnambool and RMIT in the late 80s and early 90s, but has clearly been a resident or lover of New York City for some time. His work is represented in over 25 major public collections, both nationally and internationally, and he's held 36 major solo exhibitions, exhibiting in over 150 group, curated and award shows as well as being represented in various private, public and corporate collections, including the New York Public Library, the Museum of the City of New York, the New York Historical Society and the National Gallery of Australia. The MPRG also have some of his work in their permanent collection and he had an exhibition there, a show called Across the Water, curated by Wendy Garden in 2014. His list of awards and the collections his work is included in is far too long to mention, but he's with us this morning, technologically speaking, to tell us about himself, his practice and his current show at 45 Downstairs. Good morning, Marco Lucio. Welcome to Arts About...
3: Yeah, good morning, Sally. Um, Thank you for making time for me. I'm looking forward to having a chat to you.
0: It's a great pleasure. Uh, Marco, I'm so amazed when I've looked through your website, the diversity of the work that you're doing. The exhibition Manhattan Dreaming is obviously American urbanity or or it's Melbourne, uh, Manhattan itself. But there's a great variety of all sorts of things and methods that you use to paint.
3: Yeah, well look over the years I guess one of the things I've always wanted to do is push myself beyond my own personal limits and I like to work with um uh different subjects as well as medium so I work with etching as well as um painting and I also work with um, assemblages and uh uh my projects every year or two I, I try to make them different and so that that way um it keeps me very fresh and uh keeps me excited so New York's been an ongoing theme so New York I, I sort of see as a place that over the years so for the rest of my life I imagine or hope um, will evolve and, and create a body of work about it that is uh, looked at as a whole body of work and then meanwhile while I'm doing that and working on that consistency uh, there is also yeah you know, album that I've always uh, made images of, and then in between there's things like uh I guess some of the things you're referring to are things like the book the Garden of Sorrows, which are eighty etchings about Australian animals that go through a mythical change to become human, and that was a collaboration with John Hughes so yeah I'm always uh uh trying to find new ways of challenging myself i think I think there's a real danger in just being comfortable um I guess in the past I've been really well known for my Dry points and etching. So the last six to seven years, I've introduced painting um, mm. as part of my practice as a, a consistent uh, practice. Yeah.
0: Do you do you actually live in New York?
3: No, I um, live in Australia. So I was born in Italy, live in Australia, and I travel to uh, New York uh, twice a year. Um, my recent trip, for instance, was three months. I'm going back again in November. So the idea is that I spend a couple of times a year there so that it feels a bit like home. Mm. Um, and I've been going there for 10 years now. And so, yeah, it offers a great deal of inspiration for
0: me, obviously, yeah. It looks like home in the pictures that you have painted or the, that I have seen so far on the website. There, There's a familiarity that it, it looks like somebody who lives there has painted. Them. Well,
3: that's, yeah, look, that's really wonderful to have somebody say that because I guess... That only comes after time and um, a comment, I was having a discussion with people in New York and I recently got knighted in a diner by a New Yorker who said, you are now officially a New Yorker. You've oh. been coming here for 10 years and we we're eating a burger at the time in a diner. Yeah. Pretty cliche, but uh, uh, he said to me, look, it takes 10 years, you know, to sort of become a New Yorker. That's their philosophy. And um, I guess now it does feel familiar to me. I remember the first time I went there, um I was absolutely, you know, frightened that I wouldn't be able to produce anything because uh It was just
0: so overwhelming Mm. yeah Mm, well that's a that's a question i had because i think this exhibition or i I think your general practice is on plein air and uh, many of us think of rolling hills and seascapes when we say that's great but you're right there in the middle of uh, downtown new york in amongst thousands of pedestrians and and traffic and so on and presumably wielding some big canvases because these are big works aren't they
3: Yeah, some of them uh, around six foot height, and Mm -hmm. um, it was quite interesting carrying them on the subway. You get, uh, you know, people in New York carry all sorts of things on the subway. Um, I've heard a story of somebody carrying a bridge and uh, uh, somebody carrying a couch, and uh, uh, I did have somebody who was uh, very unhappy about me carrying my Brooklyn Bridge painting on the subway because she was wearing a very expensive dress, and she said to me, that's not wet, is it? And uh, <laughs> the funny story <laughs> Actually, is that yes. as I'm carrying these canvases. When they're blank, yeah. nobody worries. But try to hail a cab uh, to try to get back to your studio when the painting is wet and nobody stops to pick you up. Uh, well, they think it's wet. The beauty of acrylic is that it dries very, very quickly. Um, and I guess your comment about painting uh, plein air, that's basically, I guess predominantly 90% 90 of what I do is a direct response to the subject. I I don't think a photo does justice to it. I think, you know, a photo is very much almost a replay compared to, say, being there on site, you know, with the the smells of the city, uh, the traffic and the noise and all that kind of stuff. I think that all gets into the canvas, you know, so they're they're sort of like artefacts as much as they are um, uh, paintings. So, you know, bringing them back home, for me, they contain... Uh, New York and they are of New York.
0: Mm-hmm. Well quite a few years ago I bought a t shirt that said to uh, said on its front London Paris New York Goulburn and obviously I bought it in Goulburn and and, and I really loved the kind of the the sort of the humor of that but the, the the inclusion of Goulburn in there that was where the humor was for me and and in some ways i I gleaned a little bit of that looking through your website yes, at the, at the yes. list of paintings because there are these you know iconic images of the Eiffel Tower and the chrysler yes. building and and so on and And then there's Cape Woolamai or the roofs of Richmond. And um, uh, And, it was really lovely.
3: And look, that's really a lovely uh, observation you've made because to me, um, it's more about the way you feel. So if you have um, a reaction to a place, I've also painted and drawn a cemetery in Maitland and, you know, places that are really obscure. Um, I've always, I guess my work's always been about place. So wherever I've lived, I've often made work about those places and it's interesting you brought up the Philip Island series at Cape Woolamai because really that was my first real big painting exhibition
0: I and have to say the, I the loved joke, those yeah, paintings and look
3: the joke was that I went from Philip Island to the island of Manhattan
0: mm. <laughs> kind of,
4: mm. so
3: in, 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 in a uh, great way I guess that marries your idea of uh, yes. uh, Goulburn and, and Manhattan well this was <laughs> the island, Philip Island and uh, Manhattan Island, so um, but that kind of painting on site is what really uh, uh, fascinates me and even when I was making the etchings for the Garden of Sorrows, I actually went to the two museums in Melbourne and Sydney and drew and etched live from the specimens and the bones and you know to try to get that interaction with the subject, Mm. you just don't get it from a photo
0: I'm amazed, I I have never thought of anybody etching uh, on site really, I always imagined that was deeply... Well,
3: it, yeah. you know, well, look, in Melbourne and Sydney, I've carried um, copper that, um, that's about five foot high onto the Sydney Harbour Bridge and, you know, um, various locations uh, around Melbourne on rooftops, on Collins Street rooftops and um, and just, you know, on the Spencer Street, looking over Spencer Street and just scratching directly, you know, with a dry point needle. And I did the same thing in New York. I took copper plates to various locations, including diners. So I'd mm-hmm. sit in the diner with these would be smaller plates, and I would just scratch all the characters that were around me onto the plate. Mm. And um, there's a little, there's a small space within the gallery at 45 downstairs, and there's, uh, that space is devoted to the uh, 20 little etchings that I've made over there in New York.
0: Oh, really? Well, th- that's those paintings or, or that, this exhibition, Manhattan Dreaming, um, attest to some pretty extraordinary locations. Yourself, I understand you had a, a studio in the Chrysler Building.
3: Yes, absolutely. I, um, <laughs> well, I mean, Robert, you've described the Chrysler building as the most beautiful building ever built. So uh, for me, uh, watching that series of his, The Shock of the New, as a student and uh, um, and seeing images of the Chrysler as a student on that film. Um, you know, I always dreamt of going to New York and then, you know, kind of uh, dreaming of painting and drawing that building and so uh, to have the opportunity to have a studio in there uh, was just absolutely wonderful and uh, looking out, the studio was in or is in, I'm lucky enough that I have a permanent um, exhibition in the space in the private uh, section of a the company there and um, uh, in that space, it's where the stars begin so if people look up at the Chrysler building and you see those stars, mm. well that's where the studio is, I'm often oh. looking out over Manhattan, through those stars. And, you know, when you look out over Manhattan as the sun sets, it really does look like you're dreaming. And to me it was a bit like um, it wasn't real. So the city looks kind of surreal from above and you have this kind of um, quality that everything is balanced and everything is quiet and... uh, um, harmonious, which is quite different to being on the street of new York yeah. and
0: That's that perspective okay. is is remarkable it 's really life changing in a way. I think that pilots get a similar thing that detachment and an overview is really an empowering Oh, look,
3: I, I had another exhibition called New York Mythic, and that was based on a helicopter ride over New York, mm-hmm. and that was kind of thrilling, but also terrifying for somebody who's afraid of heights, which I am. And um, but that feeling of being over the city—it's uh, really quite um, breathtaking and, and magical, and uh, hard to believe that humans have kind of uh, have built these uh, structures and that they um, uh, and that they form such a beautiful. Yeah, I'm always interested in why. Why do people? Uh, find uh, cities and you know sunsets over cities and uh the the you know the different kind of days uh that you have where the city appears kind of magical and uh so instead of it being a place of pollution and noise it becomes a place of uh, uh inspiration and achievement and kind of, i guess
0: yeah. now is the Chrysler building as nice on the inside as it is on the outside
3: it's uh, really spectacular in fact the the space that I have uh, is very close to where Walter Chrysler had his office. Um, it is, it used to be what's called the Cloud Club, which is the most famous speakeasy in New York. So in the thirties, that's where people would go and, you know, drink illegally or, you yeah, know, during prohibition. So 19. 19- uh, 29, 30, 30s, um, uh So the Chrysler was completed in 29, I think it was. So the Cloud Club itself was a room. So the place I'm using was a room that was just filled with Art Deco murals. Mm. And um, it is definitely absolutely beautiful on the inside. And when you get into the lift, so the public can't go beyond the foyer, but when you get into the lift of the Chrysler, the lift itself is a... um a beautiful Art Deco masterpiece, you know, the wooden inlay and all that. And then, um, you know, heading up to the to the floor where I'm at, which is right up the top, it opens up and the first view you see is this arched window, which frames the city of New York in a way that's just uh, mind-blowing. Anyone that just, first of all, opens up the lift doors and, and gets out. And I'm lucky enough that, you know, they've collected some of my work, so I'm walking around this beautiful space, which is two levels, and it's filled with my artwork. I'm just so, I'm just so fortunate in New York. It's just something that's,
0: um. Well, you've obviously tapped into something that, that New Yorkans like. And, and certainly looking at the images that I have seen on the website of Manhattan Dreaming, you obviously love the city yourself. And, and that's really shown in it. So, well, it's.
3: Yeah, I think, I think New Yorkers really appreciate people who love their city. I mean, they love their city. And, um, you know, they're quite parochial, I guess, as, as we are here. But um, uh, they really kind of respect if you're serious about it and that mm. you're not, um, you know, you're not just there to make money for the sake of making money, even though New York is based on a place of money. Economy, I mean, that's no, so it yeah. actually. Evie White Who said There's three types Of New Yorkers I'm hoping on the third one Which is somebody <laughs> Who's contributing To the place And, and offering um, Something And contributing Something to the history Of uh, of that place And uh, of art That's, uh, that's made there
0: uh, Operating as an ambassador And bringing a little bit Of it out here To, to the colonies So to speak Yeah <laughs>
3: Exactly. and they love Australians there, as you know, as you probably know. Yeah, but, um, you know, they're really kind, kind of warm and um, and friendly, which is the opposite of how people often perceive uh, uh, New Yorkers. And I um, think it's changed I mean, very much. Like, yeah, and so um, you know, I guess I'm really drawn. A part of the pun, I'm really drawn to the city. But but just if I may, just quickly, having that a studio in the Chrysler Building, what mm-hmm. that what that did allow me was that when I was painting on the streets. You know, you get really exhausted carrying these things around. So to have a place right in Manhattan in Midtown where I could duck up at any time, so I had 24-hour access. So after painting, um, so there was one painting I did which was on the corner of Grand Central and Vanderbilt that started at 2pm and finished at 7pm. So it became, it went from a day scene to a night Mm. scene and I was absolutely exhausted. You know, I painted for seven hours we had a break and uh, ripped my jeans on both knees and... uh, were going away getting me coffee and water they were sort of uh, looking after me but it was nice to just have the chrysler building right there where i could then go upstairs and sit on these beautiful couches and what? just look at the artwork and a blessed experience
0: yeah wonderful it sounds like a fantastic exhibition i'm really looking forward actually to getting down there and seeing it uh 45 downstairs have you exhibited there before
3: yes this will be my second show there and uh I like it because it looks like a New York loft. It has this Does beautiful,
0: bit, yes.
3: it doesn't it, you know, the windows and it has this beautiful kind of uh, yeah. It's a sort of space that can also accommodate big pictures and uh, uh, and the people there, the staff there are just are just wonderful. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to. I think I'm looking forward to this exhibition more than any other.
0: I will do a link to your website, which has got some fabulous videos on it, which will um, show people what it's like to actually be painting on the streets in New York and also show some of these incredible images and some of your past exhibitions, which are extraordinary. It's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you so much, Marco Lucio, and good luck with your exhibition, Manhattan Dreaming at 45 Downstairs.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Sally. I appreciate you making time.
0: See you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. We've had the most wonderful thing occur...
4: And now it's time for John. John. On. John's back.
0: Ah. Hi, well, John.
4: Well, not only have I appeared, yes. you've saved the day, but I've appeared without my regular sort of preparation. That's all
0: right. We're just glad to have you <laughs> Which here. Is, what, having a coffee before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we're just glad to have you here. You don't have to give us an on because you've had a rushed morning, and we're just glad to have your voice in here.
4: Did you smash the BMW, Mark? No, John. No. I was just wondering why you bought the other German car today Oh
1: my God, let's not talk about my car's <laughs> <laughs> problems
0: Okay, so Mark's got a little bit of a few things that he wants to talk to me about But first of all, I was supposed to do this Hold on one second Thumbs up, so I obviously got the right track
1: <laughs> Well, it's definitely not the Richmond theme song No, it where isn't it? the Richmond theme you song I couldn't get anywhere I don't know where we are supposed to find them um,
0: so um, Vanuatu and Tonga, I believe, we're heading to now, are we? Well, I want we? do Richmond first. So. Well, okay, but it doesn't really go with the song, <laughs> does it?
1: <laughs> well, I can do Vanuatu, however you say it. You probably say it better than I
0: do. Well, you do it with a French accent. How do you say it? You're there, French. You speak French there. Uh, Vanuatu. Okay, well, you're probably right. <coughs> mm.
4: So, John, does Vanuatu mean something? Uh,
1: it's from, they call it Tana. Right. I don't know where, I know what Tonga means, it means it was, they did say um, faka Tonga, the word, and uh, that meant southwards, and then they took right. the Faka off and just left the Tonga, which I think was probably... Went north a, instead. That's <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but Vanuatu, um, mm-hmm. Captain Cook didn't just chart the east coast. Have you seen that wonderful map of Australia, which has just been charted by the Dutch... And a little bit of that, yeah. and you've got the whole of these coasts is just non existent. Yes. It's a lovely map from 1663. He also went down to 71 degrees south over the Antarctic Circle, mm-hmm. which was quite a feat in that. Boy, well, down Arctic. into the Southern Ocean. Down, no, into the Antarctic Circle. He went over the Circle.
4: Really?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because looking for the Terra Australis, of course, in which he was being think didn't exist. But when, he, as in other parts of his arrival in Vanuatu, it um, had been foretold in prophecy that Captain Cook was going to arrive in Uia, which is the bay that uh, Cook named Port Resolution. And it means a small door to the world. Right. From this place, the sea merged with the world and its believed ancestors departed through this gate, where one day they will return to Tana, bringing with them harmony and peace, of course. Cook was seen as one of the gifts that return. In Vanuatu today, formal ritual exchanges still take place and the belief in ancestors bringing gifts and blessings from the spirit world is alive and well.
4: Have you seen that fabulous statue of Captain Cook in the uh, Sydney Art Gallery? Uh, Oh, that's
0: the stainless steel one, is
4: it? Yeah, it's polished stainless, very, very shiny. And he's sitting on a kind of a charting table looking looking Mm (laughs) unserious and he's gazing out the window at the harbour and uh, which is beautiful, yeah. Uh, but the harbour is reflected in him as well. You know, you can see bits oh, of the harbour all over his shiny. Who did, do you know who made the? Uh, it's a New Zealand artist whose mm. name eludes me.
0: Mm. You did mention him actually when, oh, it's a when you were thing. in Sydney last yeah. time. You, you talked about. I
1: know. It. The he one looks a little like up. you. Thank you, John. Well, that, I'll take that as a. Uh, a compliment. The one I, mean, I like a the one in, in the Park, Park.
4: <laughs> or a step in the back. Yeah, nice. <laughs> he
1: he was an amazing man. I mean, he, he he wasn't a perfect man, but he was quite amazing with what he just his charting.
0: Well, I think it. any of those men Mark, that were off there in those boats doing that. Work? There is a,
4: um, a Chinese billionaire who has just booked the rocket. Uh, Elon Musk's rocket to Mm. go around the back of the moon, Mm. and uh, he's booked the rocket for himself. So he's, in other words, he's booked the whole thing, and uh, because he wants to take with him some artists, not unlike Captain Cook, Mm. who had Joseph Solander and uh, Sydney Parkinson, mm -hmm. who both died in Bavaria. And so it's it's sort of important, I think, that those journeys have someone who can record it in a in an artistic way, or. You know, in a way that... Yeah, uh, these,
1: were, I mean, they were considered from the Enlightenment. They took uh, artists and astronomers and um, bot- botanists like Joseph Banks. And the French did the same thing. Yeah. So they could get actually because all the flora and fauna they found was just you know, that. The Banks was the was the um, hero who came back. Cook was just considered
4: the you know the captain. Well, the, of the whole ship. southern coast of Australia could have been claimed by the French as yeah, Baudin went around there, but he wasn't interested in claiming land. He was interested in seeing what was there.
1: Abs- absolutely. And when the Fre- when the English sent down two boats saying what the hell are you French doing here, they invited him on board for a glass of wine and the mm. lovely meal and. Said, just relax, boys. We're just here having a look. Yeah, and then La Perouse disappeared, of course. It did, unfortunately, with a lot of stuff. They have never found it, have they?
4: Or him, La Perouse, yeah. and his ship, yeah, yeah. the the was it? Yeah, mm. they've
1: never found it. Anyway, so what happens in Vanuatu is that the um, when the Americans came in the Second World War, they brought with them. Cargos of televisions blondes refrigerators jeeps and the the islanders had never seen any of these goods before and and thought they were magicians and spirit from the spirit world and they started these cargo cults Mm. and the cargo cult was there's one which is called John Mm from And
4: it's
1: taken from John from America because it was a uh, they said they were hoping that there'd be a return of the Messiah with more goods from from America and it's actually, it actually still exists as a cargo cult. And there's another one, which is called the Prince Philip Cult. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, for centuries, Tana... I'm Villa- a member of that. I'm sure you are, John. <laughs> <laughs> but for centuries, Tana Villages recounts an ancient tale about the son of Tana's mountain god crossing the seas in search of a powerful woman to wed. Unlike the islanders, the spirit had pale skin, when villagers visited the local post office or police station and saw the official portrait of Queen Elizabeth with her consort, they were certain they'd found their man yeah. or spirit, as and the case may be. Had. Recruitment for the movement went through the roof in 1974 when Prince Philip and the Queen vis- visited Vanuatu aboard the royal yacht Britannic- Britannica, which they have sold. As foretold, their ancestral spirit had returned to them to show off his bride. Queen Elizabeth. The movement's elders sent Philip a ceremonial club and he sent them a signed photo in return. In 2007, five Tananese flew to England to meet in person their spirit god at Windsor Castle. These people, the Tananese, live in the custom way, and the custom way is eschewing material possessions altogether. And they were shocked by the large houses full of stuff. They mm-hmm. were they found in England. They were worried about these people who owned so many things because it was so much work looking after them. They felt that they were
4: slaves to their objects. Well, they nailed that on the head, didn't they? Didn't they? Mm.
1: So, I won't go into Tonga. Uh, no, but
0: you, what, but you know, can you look at the time? No, I can't. Yes, you've only I got one minute.
1: Okay, so I want to talk about Peggy O'Neill. <clears throat> Who's Peggy O'Neill? Peggy O'Neill is the president of the Richmond Football Club, the first okay. woman to be to hold such a position. Mm-hmm. Right. She was born and raised in the small mining community of Killarney, West Virginia, which is now a ghost town, comes from a family of coal miners, and the first in her family to go to university, and she's a lawyer. She moved to Australia after falling in love with an Australian hunk while on holiday in Greece. They settled in Richmond, which was no longer filled with sleazy massage parlors, dirty pubs, empty shops, and Vietnamese heroin dealers. Or it's full of Richmond
4: football in club 2005, supporters. In two thousand and
1: five, she was elected to the board of Richmond Football Club. And watch out! In two thirteen, she was elected to replace the retiring Gary Marsh by defeating two other not happy candidates, investment banker Morris O'Shaughnessy. I don't trust him, and former Inter- International Cricket Council Malcolm Speed. Was no. he a fast bowler? <laughs> <paper? laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't You'd think so, wouldn't you? So she was the first woman, and look at the results.
4: Yeah. Yes. are it's the quite two amazing. things connected, do you think? Well,
1: look, they are really.
0: I'm just going to cut in there with the news because uh, I think that's all I can do, really. So. Marco Lucia's show, Manhattan Dreamings, opening at 45 downstairs on the 25th, and running them through until the 20th of October. And Glenn Manton's new book, Put Your Phone Down, we heard from Glenn earlier on the show too, is on bookshelves now. So if you're interested in those, there'll be both be links of though for those things uh, on our Facebook page. Upcoming in
4: October, Collective Spirit, First Nation Poetry, Saturday, October the 13th. Join. Ali Kobe eckerman at Whistlewood Gallery as she introduces three Indigenous poets, Monica Caro, Emily Munro-Harrison and Ryan Prenn, who will read new work created as the result of a seven-day creative development residency at Kalang Retreat in summers.
0: Yeah, that's at Whistlewood. I haven't heard anything about that until I just I'm read it yesterday. I'm not familiar with
4: Indigenous poetry. No.
0: Mark, have you heard about that at all?
4: Uh, no, not
1: yet. Yeah. I'd be very interested to go there. Whether it's is it
4: Indigenous poetry or is it poetry poetry? Uh, Written and presented by Indigenous people It's
0: poetry written and presented by Indigenous people right. Yeah uh, That's October the 13th um, I think go to Whistlewood's website They'll have a link to it there And I'll of course put a link on our Facebook page as well There's three new exhibitions coming up at the NPRG. uh Catherine Truman's No Surface Holds And Line of Inquiry as well as Anne Farrain's Intimate Journals. So we should find out about those.
1: Also at uh, Sydney Art Gallery, there's a Hermitage collection coming, the um, Shuskin and Molotov, was he? No, the other guy, two industrious whose right. you know, collections are Great cult. collection. Great collection of Picasso and Matisse's. Yep. That's in October also.
0: Fabulous.
4: That's a trip to Sydney.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's have, a, let's have a trip to Sydney. Let's have a show trip to Sydney. That sounds fantastic.